Do, yeah, but do you think that you're gonna? I'm gonna find what? something out about you in this podcast that I didn't already know. Yeah. Really? In this interview here? Oh, this is exciting now. I yeah, thought, sure. I was gonna ask you a few questions. No, this is, not, this is not <laughs> starting out that way. Um, <laughs> hey, this is Adam with Mile High Stash, the podcast that asks what five albums you would take to a remote Colorado cabin in the event of a zombie apocalypse. Armed with only food, water, and a crank-powered Victrola, what five records would you want? Oh, and we'll get to know our guests along the way. Then show me what I'm really made of. More than This is Mile High Stash, and I'm going to say some things while our, our guest today sits here awkwardly. Uh, this is something that um, I've wanted to do for a long time, um, have, a, have a podcast and talk about music and, and interview people who are interesting, whether they're musicians or politicians or scientists or anything. And I think I was scared of it for a long time, and uh, ironically, the person that I'm interviewing today um, has been a role model, I think, in facing my fears. Our guest today is uh, Clay Rose of Gasoline Lollipops, a bolder alt-country band that has gone from dive bars to household name, at least in this part of the world. Um, I was in Gasoline Lollipops for a long time with Clay and still play a lot of shows with him as, as a duo um, all over the state. He's a true Colorado original, and he's also the longtime manager of another Colorado original, The Widow's Bane. Um, the new Gasoline Lollipops album is called Nightmares, and I'm looking forward to talking about that with Clay. I also just want to introduce myself. My name is Adam Perry. I'm a longtime music writer and drummer living in Boulder. If you haven't noticed, I have a speech impediment. I have a stutter that I'm not going to try and hide or edit on Mile High Stash. And if you have a problem with my stutter, don't listen to the show. Or hit me up on Venmo. You can pay for some therapy. <laughs> I don't really care. I'm here to talk about music with people I find interesting and get to know them with music as sort of a signpost or a series of signposts along the way. But first, a word from some local folks helping make the show happen. <laughs> This episode of Mile High Stash is brought to you in part by the historic Jamestown Mercantile. From the gourmet brunch menu, wood-fired pizza nights, and ever-changing dinner specials, the food at the Merc is always worth the beautiful Canyon Drive. More than a fantastic restaurant, the Merc is also Jamestown's community meeting place, a mountain hangout, a stop for cyclists and tourists, and a great place to see live music. Head to jamestownmercantile.com for more info. When you send me packing down Green River Valley. Do you remember the first time you were at the Merc? Clay Rose of Gasoline Lollipops, who is our guest today. Uh, no, I don't remember my first time at the Merc. I must have been a little kid. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember my first memory of being at the Merc, but I know it wasn't my first time there. I just, What's your first memory of the Merc? It was my seventh birthday party, and me and some friends walked down to the Merc from my house to get some ice cream or something. And we come up to the front porch, and there's this gang of kids sitting there. 
and uh the, the one of them's really big right and uh like the the smallest one of course starts talking trash to me and my friend anna as we're walking up there and he's like hey you think you're pretty cool don't you cool guy and I don't know why he said that, because I, I definitely was not dressed cool in any way. <laughs> and, uh, and my friend Anna, she starts mouthing off to that kid. <laughs> She's like, well, I can tell he's cooler than you. And he's like, well, he's not cooler than my cousin. My cousin's from Chicago. <laughs> and he points at his big kid. And the big kid like just like mad dogs me, you know? And then I'm like, yeah, well, what's so cool about Chicago anyway? And he's like, I could beat you at an arm wrestling match. <laughs> And then Anna is like, nah, you couldn't. And I'm this scrawny little kid, and he looks like a linebacker. And so then, I don't know, the kids all rally around us, and we walk up onto the porch, and we sit down at the picnic table, and we have a good old-fashioned arm wrestling match. And uh, I lost. <laughs> but I made the kids sweat. And then as we're walking away, the little guy yells something else at us. And Anna just picks up a rock about the size of a golf ball and turns around and chucks it at the kid. It hits him square in the forehead, cuts it open, starts bleeding and crying, and we ran back to the party. Well, <laughs> Jamestown Mercantile, great food, great live music, great drinks, and maybe an arm, arm wrestling match if you head up there. Yeah. 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 Well, arm wrestling matches are more reserved for Ward these days, I think. That's true, and fires on... Fourth of July. Yeah, you know? exactly. If you want to have firework wars, you go there to lose an eye. Yeah, if anyone has seen the uh, bootlegged video of the fireworks war and ward from this year, you'll be truly terrified. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Clay Rose is um, from this area. Um, he was born just down the road, I think. And Were you born in the hospital in Lafayette? No, I was born at home in Lafayette. At home in Lafayette, yeah. Yeah. And um, has lived in and uh, the Boulder area and the Los Angeles area and Nashville, mm -hmm. um, Fort Collins area as Austin, well. Austin, Texas. Oh, Austin, Texas too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia. Yeah. Wow. See, we are going to learn things about <laughs> each other on, on this episode. Um, the nature of this show is um it's about a very specific situation you know where you would be stranded <laughs> during a zombie apocalypse maybe there is going to be more than one zombie apocalypse but i was thinking a zombie apocalypse let's call this one for my sake the friendly zombie apocalypse. the friendly zombie yeah. apocalypse they're friendly but they're still leeches you know okay. what i mean yeah yeah because that's the kind of most susceptible to like, if they were mean, I'd just chop their head off. Right. right. But friendly, I just yeah. I can't say no. It's like, oh, all right, have a bite. <laughs> well, either way, I hate to tell you, but you're going to be completely alone. Okay. And you're going to be in a cabin. And I think you can picture somewhere uh, in Colorado, um, in the mountains, extremely isolated in a cabin. There's water and there's... We don't even need the zombies. That's already my worst nightmare. Right, right. So uh, there's food and, and water, and there is a crank-powered Victrola. No Netflix, though? No Netflix, oh, absolutely man. not. And you could bring five vinyl records. Oh, my God. What's your first choice? Well, see, when I was thinking about this question, I was thinking there's two different ways to answer this question. 
one is as a music listener Mm -hmm. and one is as a music maker right like i myself am a songwriter so there's that relationship with music but i myself am also just a music lover so there's that relationship and they're not the same records you only get five though so so whether or not the way i was answering it in my head was as a writer and that's because while i enjoy a lot of records as a writer there's certain records that that are a part of me and there's plenty of records that i like more than those but none of those records are a part of me you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so i'm going with the records that are a part of me so there's lots of records that i like more than these five right and i gotta tell you the first three were easy it's just like a given okay just give me one at this all right this is my intro (laughs) it's important i gotta set the stage all right there was about 20 records that tied for four and five i'm gonna tell you that but I'll I'll narrow it down to five for your sake in, in the final hour. I haven't done it yet. But when we get to that painful junction, I'll let you know. All right. Record number one. Either Leonard Cohen's first one or uh, New Skin for the Old Ceremony. I'd take either one. You got to pick one, though. All right. This first one. Okay. Why that one? Because that's the first Leonard Cohen record that I heard. And it was, uh, yeah, it just made such a deep deep mark on me at such a impressionable junction in my life it taught me how to write poetry like that's why i started writing poetry i didn't wasn't writing songs yet i didn't have an instrument to write on um but i wrote poetry with the feeling of leonard cohen in my mind and i've told you this story before but i found this tape and it was unlabeled at the back of a closet in my mom's house and so I had no idea who I was listening to. So to me, that experience, especially I was like 12 or 13 and really, really depressed and borderline suicidal, very, very crazy, living out in the sticks in Tennessee at my mom's house. And um, it uh, writing poetry that, that summer saved my life and that record saved my life. You've described Leonard Cohen as your guru, kind of. Yeah. He is. He's very much a father figure yeah. to me. And like uh, the first time I saw him at Red Rocks, it was like, I, I describe it like I've seen, I've seen devout Catholics in the presence of the Pope and they just break down crying, you know, like they're having this spiritual experience. Or, or I've seen Tibetan refugees who've crossed the Himalayas into Dharamsala and they see the Dalai Lama for the first time. And it's not that intense, but mm-hmm. it was on the spectrum of that experience when I saw him at Red Rocks because I just started weeping. Was and it Suzanne? Did he open with Suzanne? Um, it was Suzanne. Yeah. It was either Suzanne or Sisters of Mercy. But it was one of the songs off of his first record. Yeah. And, you know, it just to have, like, no, I can't describe it to anybody what it feels like to have a lifeline thrown to you at the bottom of depression where there's, like, nothing else but the stepping off point and like a rope comes down right at that second. And that record was that rope for me. And I started writing. And so to see that man in the flesh and to see that this is a human being, actually, this is a real thing that spoke to me because especially that whole summer until I finally played it for my dad. And he was like, Oh, this is my old tape. This is Leonard Cohen. Until that moment, I was the only person that knew these songs i'm the only one that had right. ever heard exactly that you know like, like yeah. yeah like yeah. there was n- like nobody else had ever heard this music and right. 
And my friends at that age, 12, 13, right? So I go to play it for my friends. Like, you got to hear them. Obviously, it's like they're listening to whatever, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. You know what I mean? kids on the block, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And they're like, what is this garbage? So nobody got it. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like I was the only one in the world that got it. And I felt like he was the only one in the world that got me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and Spiders from Mars for me. Which my brother got accidentally because he was a member of Columbia House or something. And he literally threw it on my bed and he said, I don't know what this is. It looks stupid or something. And he gave it to me. And I was uh, 14 and it just completely changed my life. Like, um, not only did I have that experience where it felt like no one else knew about this, but it was a gateway drug to yeah, so many other things. For sure. So today is the five-year anniversary of a show that we played at the High Dive in Denver, and I'll never forget that. Uh, not just that night, but that week. Donald Trump was elected, and I think one day later, we had a headlining show at the High Dive, which at the time was a really big deal for us, like a stepping stone of some kind, and Leonard Cohen died that day and it was like physical is the end of the world yeah and i remember feeling a sense of like physical sadness that night there were a lot of people there and it felt like we were playing at a funeral it was so weird because um i had my son cohen yeah in the car with me when we were driving and they announced that leonard cohen had died on the radio and Cohen in the back seat. He just heard his name, you know. He's like, they just said my name, right? And I just started weeping, Jesus. you know. Yeah, yeah. So, this experience of being stranded w- without your family or friends and not knowing if if it's the end of the world, uh, it also kind of re- reminded me of the song "Love Is Free" because in that song you're stranded as well. Yeah, you know. Um, I mean, uh, I've kind of felt stranded ever since I found that Leonard Cohen. I mean, before I felt found that Leonard Cohen record, I feel less stranded now that I've found music yeah. and my people in music. But yeah, I don't that that feeling of stranded never really went away. Hmm. I wanted to ask you. Um, you said the other day um, that The Fountain is your favorite movie, and I wanted to ask about when you were a kid. Like, when was the first time that you were such a romantic? Oh, the first time I remember feeling romantic, I think was probably, it was like around when I was five years old. My dad took me to the theater to see Lady Hawk. What's Lady Hawk? It's an 80s movie with Michelle Pfeiffer and Matthew Broderick. <laughs> and it's a, it takes place in medieval times. And... Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and oh, what's his name? The dude from uh, Blade Runner that played the main, the main cyborg that he was hunting. Remember? Oh, um, Rutger Hauer. Yeah, Rutger yeah. Hauer. So Rutger Hauer and Michelle Pfeiffer, and 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 they've been they got this spell cast on them that makes uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's character turn into a, a red-tailed hawk by day, and Rutger Hauer turns into a wolf at night. And so they never get to be human at the same time, but they're always together. Like the hawk is his hawk, and the wolf keeps her safe at night, right? And uh, there's this one scene where she gets shot with an arrow in the wing, and and it's really cold, and he's out on this like desert plain, and he digs a hole 
for them to sleep in and get out of the out of the wind and in the morning the sun comes up but because they're down in this hole the sunlight hasn't hit them yet and there's this one moment where they're both human and they haven't seen each other in human form like as human for decades right and she reaches out her hand and he reaches out his hand and just as they're about to touch she turns into a hawk Hmm. and the feeling that that scene gave me was so deeply intense and like it was a feeling that I recognized and I don't know how I could have recognized that feeling as a five-year-old kid right but I recognized it like I knew it and uh I guess that was the first time I remember feeling romantic <laughs> the younger you are I think the the more capable you are of of understanding you know stuff like that without LSD you know yeah basically. <laughs> well your heart's open yeah yeah it's before we put on the armor second choice second choice Bob Dylan uh the freewheeling freewheeling yeah why that one um Again, just because it was one of the first ones of his that I heard, but I was even younger than I was when I found Leonard Cohen. I was probably six or seven years old when I started hearing those songs. And um, I just remember, yeah, a lot of those songs, the way that my my pop thought about those songs and what they meant to him, they were his anthems. And like he based his life on those songs and, and sort of the teachings in those songs. And so he presented it to me like Dharma, you know, like yeah. it was it was equal like with the teachings of the Buddha, you know, like this is the Buddha is like interpersonal. It's about, you know, going deep within yourself to find your connection to the universe. But these songs are the teachings of how to relate in society, you know, like this is how a society should operate. And these are the values and the ideals of a yeah. society. And so it was sort of a, yeah, I don't know, a, a roadmap to dealing with. The world at large, politic politically or otherwise. Well, that album has some really wise, important lessons on it, from relationships to politics to um, a lot of different things, and that immediately made me think of the cover of Masters of War that you did recently. That was really powerful. Is that a song that that hit you when you were that young? Oh yeah, yeah. That was and, and Pop was you know a conscientious objector to the vietnam war he burned mm -hmm. his draft card and he was like he actually was going to go to to jail for it um so then he's like he was finally like okay i'll go into the military because they were going to send him to jail for a long time but then when he got to the military they saw all the, all the felonies on his record and they're yeah. like we don't want you so he got to go home you've told me so many stories about your dad that i definitely want to have him on the show oh yeah he's a colorful character um i might i don't know he might not want everything talked about on the show but you know you never know yeah. you know he's getting i feel like he's getting more and more open yeah. but i also think that as he gets older he's thinking more and more about what impact his stories have on yeah. people you know because yeah. I think he saw the impact they had on me. <laughs> One of the best things I've heard you say about him is that when he picked you up from school, you didn't know whether he'd pick you up in a limousine or a dump truck. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, he was simultaneously a, a limo driver and a dump truck driver and yeah. a furniture mover. What influence did your mom have as, as far as the music that you got into as a kid with my mom because she lived in the ozarks in arkansas when mm -hmm. i was real little and that's where my mom's side of the family still lives and now she's back there again 
So in the Ozarks, there was a lot of Appalachian folk music, you know, a lot of mountain dulcimers. They played the jug, they played spoons, the washtub bass, the whole nine yards. So there's a whole lot of standards, and it was a generally, at least the song catalog that they all chose to sing was very positive, very uplifting, very family oriented, right? And and a lot of pride in the area that you're from and the land and all this stuff. And uh, I gotta say, I never found it to be very honest. Mm. It didn't reflect my experience of of those people in general <laughs> right it was too positive to be real yeah mm-hmm. yeah and uh and you know and then she moved to nashville and because she, uh, she uh wrote a song for willie nelson mm-hmm. that he put on his record always on my mind and the last thing i needed first thing this morning yeah and uh so then she moved to nashville to take her hand at that and out there it was a lot of country but it was like um we were going to all these writers' nights and stuff at the Bluebird Cafe, and uh, you know, country music, popular country music at the time was, I, I think, in the toilet, and uh, still is, and um, so the music I was being exposed to there was like all these up and coming Nashville songwriters, and I was just like, uh, from the time I was really, really little, I remember listening to music and going, I could do better. Yeah. I mean, yeah. from the time I was super, super little. And even like Bruce Springsteen, who's one of my heroes, he's number three, by the way. <laughs> um, even him, like, there, there were, there's lyrics now in his songs, and they're the same lyrics that I noticed when I was five or six, where I'm like, oh, that was a stretch of a rhyme. Yeah. Or, oh, that you were like too many syllables in that line. You know what I mean? Like, it, it bothered me. Like, you don't feel was, that way about Leonard Cohen. No, not at all. I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't yeah. change a word, not a beat, nothing. Yeah. Um, uh, Dylan, even though, there's quite a few lines where I'm like, you could have done better. If you had spent five more minutes on that line, you would have come up with something better. Well, he didn't spend as much time on no, he was each free song the way yeah. that Cohen did. Yeah. 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 So number three is which Bruce Born in the USA. Born in the USA. Yeah, it's not my favorite by a long shot, but it's the one that's the most a part of me. And so I couldn't I couldn't do without it because still I still listen to that record probably three or four times a year, you know? Like and I and I fucking rock to it. Like yeah. just yesterday I was dancing in the kitchen to with Seraphine to Darlington County. That's mm-hmm. just Man, it's infectious. I love it. It's really a part of me. That '80s snare drum that sounds like a firecracker. Yeah, well, uh, a firecracker in a tunnel. It's like, yeah, yeah. The thing about that album is that I remember it being out when I was five or so um, in Pittsburgh, and it was just in every bit of advertising. And they decided that you know the genius behind. The marketing of the album was they would treat it as a new album for like three years like the new album from bruce springsteen and so by the time i was seven i was just like i never want to hear any uh, yeah. of this ever again for the rest of my life yeah um i remember hearing it when i was four years old i remember hearing dancing in the dark and like i could not sit still <laughs> I, it got into me like so deep like I just had to rock yeah and it was awesome I loved it and then Pop got the album and you know he's a truck driver so then it became one of like 24 he had a 24 uh, tape case holder <laughs> and that was one of the 24 
and it was in heavy rotation that summer man like four five six years old those those three years right there it was just like and it, at the same time uh paul simon came out with graceland right around the same time graceland it's amazing and nebraska we listened to nebraska by bruce springsteen a lot too and i love that record but if i had to choose between the two for the rest of my life i'd want to rock out nebraska is a gateway for people who feel like like me at a, at a certain age uh maybe you should give bruce springsteen a chance and you've always thought like i could never you know you consider him like you know jimmy buffett and then you hear <laughs> nebraska and you say i should give this a chance yeah i would i you know i i maybe would take nebraska except those lyrical imperfections there's oh. too many of them for me to bear on that record you think atlantic city has lyrical there's one there's a big one on what is it i'm not gonna <laughs> i don't want to analyze lyrics it's just it's my own personal thing you know what i mean it's like i'm i'm kind of ocd about cadence you know when it comes to cadence and how the how the syllables land mm -hmm. um and yeah there's there's one spot in particular on atlantic city that just i'm like oh damn it if you well, just cut that one listen. word yeah yeah listen and see if you can yeah. hear it you know another one that does that like to an extreme is um fat mike from no effects mm -hmm. and i love no effects but he does it to such a comical extreme that i give him a pass you know like he changes the sound of words mm -hmm. to make them rhyme and to break and he breaks up syllables in the weirdest places he changes the lyrics during performances and i love that i remember yeah. um you know most people get into no effects from punk and drublick um and then they have that that live album i heard they suck live which i think is so underrated it's one of the greatest live albums ever yeah, I love that and the record. banter is better than the song yeah but i remember um hearing that uh, when it came out that's how old i am and uh just hearing him make up lyrics that were better than what was on the album yeah on stage the very first no effect song i ever heard was don't call me white from the yeah. live album ain't dead he's asleep home in bed Elvis is cooking him the Hendrix and Joplin went out to go shopping they'll be home before noon with the days yes, this episode of Mile High Stash is brought to you in part by Rising Tide Tattoo Emporium Boulder's premier tattoo shop Rising Tide is led by the incredible Phil Bartell, who has been tattooing for over 25 years and is inspired by the Japanese tattoo lineage, Tibetan Tonka painting, and Art Nouveau. Book an appointment at Rising Tide with Phil or another of the shop's amazing artists who work closely with each client to make sure every piece is unique and true to their vision. Rising Tide welcomes walk-ins as well as appointments, so stop by today or head to TattooBoulder.com. I wanted to ask you, Clay, about... Uh, the sponsor that was just mentioned it's uh rising tide oh <laughs> tattoo oh yeah i love phil down at rising tide Rise yeah. I, every time this is absolutely true i'm not getting paid for this <laughs> <laughs> every single time somebody asks me if i know a good tattoo shop around i'm like rising tide is the best hands down if you get an appointment there you're lucky as hell because yeah phil is the best and all his artists are always the best 
He's got the best team. Yeah, he worked uh, where Boulder Inc. is where I first met him. Right. Um, years and years ago, and uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, I got I got tattoos from Phil. He's the best. So when I met you, um, we were in college and we were in the music class, and um, I think we bonded over things we liked, but maybe even more so things we didn't like, and. <laughs> <laughs> kinds of people that we well, we were like. also the same age and we were the only mm. two people of our age in that class other than the teacher right and probably the only ones who knew who the pogues were yeah um and you're i think we we're the only ones that knew what punk rock was yeah. yeah yeah um your final project was on sea sea shanties from you know hundreds of years ago up to uh dropkick murphy's or uh <laughs> something like that it was probably flogging Molly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I remember how into it you got when you were playing us the songs, and <laughs> that was amazing. Yeah, uh, and I love that I did that project because it still influences my music today, and it was really the inspiration for The Widow's Bane because mm -hmm. if you remember, I started that band right at the same time that I did that project. Yeah. And you gave us a review on this like album that I recorded in the bedroom of my trailer. It's a great album. And you were like, you said something like, this is one of the best local albums to come out in a long time. And and I, I still believe like, that. I was like so embarrassed because I was like, oh God, all these people. I, I, I recorded it literally for 200 bucks. Like, Yeah. <laughs> That's the kind of music I like. And I think it's one of the best things you've done. Oh, you know? thanks. Um, you already broke through the fourth wall or some wall and saying that, you recorded the Widow's Bane album, you know. So I thought if I asked you about the Widow's Bane, you'd say that's a band that you managed, you know. <laughs> so, no, I engineered the record. You engineered for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I only charged them 200 bucks because they were flat broke. Yeah. Even though the lead singer was supposed to be this, like, you know, really rich guy, but he didn't have a pot to piss in. Yeah. How much um, of an influence on... The Widow's Bane is the the Rain Dogs album. Um, it's Big Time. Yeah, yeah, Big Time by Tom Waits. There's oh, some Big Time more so. Yeah, yeah. There's um, there's songs from uh, Swordfish, Trombone, and uh, and Rain Dogs on that album because it's like a you know. Right. Right. Yeah. So, but that's the that's the record that I had, and, and I wore it out. It's huge, huge influence on, on Singapore. Yeah, Singapore, 16 Shells, Clap yeah. Hands, all that shit, yeah. Really, really percussive and and dirty and Even kind, of, kind of scary, but overall, like, comical. That's like the Widow's Bane. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's... It was Gogol Bordello and Tom Waits were the two main influences. I always say that uh, Widow's Bane is somewhere between Devochka and the Misfits, but... That's kind of what Tom Waits and Coco Bordello would be anyway. Yeah, yeah, definitely Davachka too. Davachka yeah. influenced it as well. Yeah, and for the Gas Pops, the early stuff, it was like uh, the legendary Shack Shakers and mm -hmm. uh, Reverend Horton Heat and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I don't like Reverend Horton Heat. <laughs> Mike Ness. Yeah. You know, Mike, yeah. the Cheating at Solitaire record. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Um, 
when I joined Gasoline All Day Pops in fall of 2015, you're playing Waterloo every week. Um, you know, this little uh, Texas roadhouse in Louisville, Colorado, and you were playing Oscar Blues once a month. And now, uh, how many years later? Seven years later. Um, uh, you just packed the Boulder Theater and you have a new album that's on the radio. So how'd you get from you? You me. know how I got there. <laughs> it was you. That's not true. <laughs> it is too. <laughs> I just showed up. I just showed up. You told me where to show up. I showed up there. You told me like when to answer my phone. When I answered to answer. my phone. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> everybody needs somebody, whether it's yourself or something someone else if you have the talent you have the songs and you have the stage show it's either got to be you or somebody else who actually books the shows and networks and does stuff like that and so yeah you did it for quite a while mm -hmm. and then i did it for quite a while and now brad's doing it yeah but you know that i think getting over that hump that first hump is the hardest part yeah once you're going down the backside of it and you're kind of self-propelled you know yeah. But, I, you know, I've been playing Waterloo and Oscars for almost a decade by the time you joined yeah. the band. So, um, This new album is great, and one of the things that I really like about it is that it's a little weird. It's, it's got <laughs> it's some weird. engineering on it, you know, that's out of the box. And um, uh, how do you feel about this album? I like it. Yeah. You know, uh there was two different mixes, and the Octave Records mix is super dry. It's just acoustic instruments, you know, and Donnie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but just that. It's just recorded to tape or whatever, and it's just, that's it. And then we took it to Andrew Berlin, and he was like the fifth Beatle or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he, The George Martin. Yeah, he, mm -hmm. he put a whole different spin on it. And it was like... A, at first, it was jarring when I heard his mix. It's like, oh my god! I mean, I gave it to the man because I know what he does, and that's mm -hmm. exactly what I wanted him to do. Yeah. But still, in all, because I've been so used to the octave mixes, you know, and uh, yeah, it took me a while to drop into it. But now, yeah, I haven't listened to the octave mixes since then. You right. Know? So I don't, I don't really know. But yeah, I like the ethereal thing. I like the sheen of atmosphere that he puts on it. And I've always wanted to be more extreme with mixing the records, you know. But uh, for some reason, well, I mean, you know, the band is always a democracy, and I usually have gotten voted down. Like, people want, the guys in the band want to be able to reproduce what we put on record live. Mm -hmm. And I, f like, I finally was just like, that, why? You know, because what we do live is what we do live. I don't know, man. Like some of my favorite records, like Leonard Cohen. Yeah, you, if you go to see Leonard Cohen, you're probably not going to hear all that shit that's on his first record. There's like toy piano and mm -hmm. cranks and bells and all kinds of shit. It, it's what gives you the atmosphere. You put on the headphones, you close your eyes, and you're it's in an a experience. whole different world. You're mm -hmm. not at a concert. You're at a whole different world. You know. So that's yeah. That's kind of the direction I hope. I continue to go unless I'm just making really loud garage rock, which I really want to make one of those. Yeah, I'd like to make it with you. Sweet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, 
So number four on the list. Okay, so now we're into the... Uh, all right. Number four, I'm going to give Van Morrison, Veed and Fleece. It sounds like it could have been recorded in the same day at the same studio with the same players as Astral Weeks. Right. It's got that same vibe, but I like the songs on it better than Astral Weeks. But that record, yeah, my dad used to listen to it a lot when I was a kid. And then when I worked at the Great Escape record store in Nashville, I was living on Centennial Park there and I had a record player and I got that record and I just wore it out. I was like, I remember listening to that record and 10 years after. Mm-hmm. A you lot. turned me on to 10 years after. Yeah. But yeah, Veed and Fleece is, I think, my favorite Van Morrison album. And it's just, um, he resonates with like the Celtic Irish heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it, it definitely feels like a deep part of me. These are the people who essentially are with you in this cabin. You got Leonard Cohen, Bruce Springsteen, um, Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan, and Van Morrison. Yeah, I mean, I would not want to sit with any of those guys in a fucking cabin. None of them. <laughs> not not the actual men, no. <laughs> I mean, maybe Leonard Cohen, you know, but even him, I was, I think I'd be like, damn, can we laugh a little? Right. You know, can we like watch some fucking Three Stooges or something? Because yeah, <laughs> he's a And the answer heavy. would be no. We don't have, <laughs> there's nothing here but a record player. Yeah. yeah. Um, I interviewed... Nathaniel Rateliff a couple of days after he was on Jimmy Fallon and that was the the moment that like changed everything for him and he was in a weird position when I uh, spoke with him because everything he was just like everything's different now and he told me the story of the song Son of a Bitch and he said it's kind of disorienting right now because everyone's is thinking of this song as like a fist in the air, like jubilation song, you know, when the story behind it is actually that he had the DTs in, I think he was in Scotland and his friends had like abandoned him and he was in some house by himself and he thought he was going to die. So I wanted to ask you if you have any songs you've written that people stomp around to with their fist in the air and, you think well, this is actually not, not try a happy song. any try any, any single one <laughs> any single song that I've written. I mean, this, I mean, yeah. I think it's pretty obvious when you listen to my songs if you listen to the lyrics at all that almost all of them are born of suffering, you know, of mm-hmm. some kind or another. So, yeah. I mean, I'm not sitting down to write dance songs. That's just what they end up being for some weird reason. Yeah. But, you know, I saw that thing that Goat posted today. Did you see that? Yeah. About the two shows yeah, yeah, he yeah. saw? He said he saw us, and he saw some other fellow the next day. And he goes, this other fellow was the complete opposite from Clay Rose. He was happy. <laughs> he was positive. He was pro-family. And what was the third thing that was an opposite from me? Um, optimistic, yeah. You've made peace with a lot of things in life. And, and you're actually not the guy from the song death anymore i mean you're still him i mean <laughs> but I, I am still that guy and i still feel the same way about psychiatry yeah um but i would say i, I must be optimistic because i'm still sitting here yeah you know what i mean you didn't give up and furthermore he went on to say <laughs> that at our show 
It was wall-to-wall people dancing their asses off, all sweaty, jumping up and down, having a great time. It was a and blast. at this other guy's show, everybody's in seats. <laughs> so, but you're telling me I'm the depressing show and that's the happy one? <laughs> like, what? Like, the proof is in the pudding, goat. We love you, goat. I'm a happy fucking guy. <laughs> I'm happy, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of family, um, how has being a husband and and a father to uh, a son and a daughter changed you as a songwriter? Um, it's made me more self-conscious. What does that mean? It means that I know now whatever songs I write, my children at some point are going to hear. Mm-hmm. It might be until after I'm dead, right? But I used to only be writing for that kid that found the Leonard Cohen tape. Mm-hmm. That was like who I was writing for. That's why I was writing as deeply as I was writing and saying the things I was because if that kid is experiencing those things and no one else around them is, I want him to be able to find my tape at the right time, you know? Yeah. And now it's my kids and it's a little bit different. Yeah. I'm not so detached. I'm not so calloused in the way that I... Um, say things you know like I'm not so reckless like yeah let's go break shit let's go break shit let's go get as fucking close to the edge as we can without dying right because I needed to do that but I don't want my kids to do that (laughs) you know what I mean even though I needed to I just don't want them to need to do that I want to I want to give them um, an alternative to that and and until I had kids of my own, I thought because it was okay for me, it was okay for any kid. And now I'm seeing that it's not. Do you think they'll get into rock and roll? Uh, Seraphine's already into rock and roll. Yeah. She loves it. And Cohen prefers country. I mean the rock and roll lifestyle. You know, oh, the rock and roll lifestyle? I mean, I don't rock know. rock and roll. Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I think Cohen has a a healthy enough distrust of authority that that could maybe make him prone to the rock and roll lifestyle. And I think Seraphine's got a propensity for jumping around, getting crazy, and breaking shit. So, yeah, they both they both might drift into it. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about this uh, songwriting showcase that you're doing with the Roots Music Project in Boulder. Um, so yeah, the Roots is that nonprofit that's here in Boulder and they're, they got a small venue, it's intimate and they're letting artists do what they want to do there. And I heard about it. So I asked if I could do a monthly songwriter showcase for local songwriters and, uh, Dave, the proprietors was down. So that's what I'm doing. Um, the idea behind it is that without other small venues in Boulder, it's impossible for local songwriters to get into the scene because there isn't a scene here. But now with Roots, there's a possibility of a scene. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, there's the Merc, you know, but if you're you're new and you're just starting out, you're only going to bring the people who go to the Merc, which is great, and that's awesome. But you go to even Gold Hill Inn and it's not going to translate much, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, Boulder needed needed this, needed a 
a place for this and I've just over the last 20 years gotten to know so many amazing songwriters in the area and I don't see them gigging you know and it's disturbing to me and so I want to bring um, the audience that I've accumulated over the last seven years or whatever 10 years and expose them to these other people that maybe they haven't seen or heard before it's so exciting and so necessary yeah i think and i I love i love the feeling that um those of us that survived the pandemic it's seeming like there's way more uh there's a much more helpful spirit among us now you know what i mean like we feel like survivors and we got through this thing together and i feel like there's a lot more cross-pollination going on. I see a lot more reaching across the aisle and helping people up. You know, it, it used to have more of a competitive edge to mm-hmm. it compared to now, even though it's always been friendly around here compared to, like, Nashville or L.A. It's way always been way more friendly, but it's still there's been this feeling of, like, you know, are you leeching on me? Are you trying to get my shit, you know? Mm-hmm. And and now I don't feel any of that. Like, everybody just seems super helpful and really loving and respectful of each other, and especially that we survived what we survived, you know? Yeah. Tell me a little bit of, um, about this New Year's show at the Caribou Room in Netherlands and what that might mean to you having just moved there. Yeah, I live, literally live right across the road from the Caribou now. Yeah. So what it means is that I can get as shit-faced drunk as I want to, and I don't even have to walk home because it's downhill. All I have to do is fall out the door, and I'll roll across the highway and down the road into my driveway. No, I'm kidding. Sounds like a great night. Let me tell you something. <laughs> Today marks seven years without alcohol. Yeah, man. To this day. So, yeah. No, I won't be drinking. Um it's it's interesting uh moving to netherland the day we moved up there we moved all our stuff there we hadn't even spent a night there but we were gonna spend our first night and so we unpacked and we didn't have time to cook so i drove down to the thai restaurant there and i was walking down the street and there's all these tourists out there and i've only i literally only been a netherland resident for two hours and I'm already looking down my nose at all the tourists. <laughs> I'm like, this is my town. Right. And there was this feeling. I mean, I didn't expect this feeling to come over me, but just like, oh, wow, this is where I live now. This is my town. These are my people. And I was just like, I've wanted that for ever since I left the mountains, you know? I mean, especially since I moved back from Nashville in 2002, that's all I've been doing is trying to get up to the mountains, and it's finally happening. Congrats. Thanks. And it was so cool. The other night, um, Danny Schaefer, who's the manager now up at Caribou Room, he uh, he told me that Banshee Tree was playing up there. He's like, yeah, Banshee, play- Banshee Tree's going to be playing this Saturday. I love Banshee Tree, yeah. one of my favorite local bands. And I really wanted to go. And then Saturday I woke up with, like, sick. I had a cold. And I was like, shit, I don't want to go get people sick, you know. But I went outside. Uh, before I went to bed to have a cigarette. I'm out there smoking, and I can hear Banshee Tree yeah. through the woods. It was so fucking cool. Wow. Well, that should be a great night. It's um, going to be awesome. Yeah. And, well, I don't know. My wife might. I was about to say, everyone's invited to the after party at my house, <laughs> but my wife might not be down with that. Probably not. <laughs> no. 
Okay, so you have chosen four albums that you would want if you were alone in an in a cabin somewhere in Colorado with the zombies, you know, around. And fifth record, man. Oh, this is so so hard now. Last I've, one. I've pushed everything off. I can't just rattle off twenty albums. No, right this now. is five. This is it. <sighs> Can it be a best of? Sure, it's a record. Okay. Yeah, counts as a record. All right, then I'm gonna have to say best of Otis Redding. Why? Because he's my favorite voice of all time. He's got so much soul and his his cadence is impeccable. Yeah. Impeccable. Like he he works he works in microseconds. You know what I mean? Like his where he lets the lyric land is just right behind where everyone else lets the lyric land. And it's in this sweet spot that he stops we, time that we just don't know about. Well, a sweet spot that I think I know about now is when an episode of Mile High Stash has concluded. That was a lot of fun, and, and I learned a bunch of things about Clay I didn't know. Um, the new Gasoline Lollipops album, Nightmares, is, is out now, and they are playing at the Caribou Room on New Year's Eve in Nederland, which is just outside of Boulder. Um, Thanks for listening, and I'm excited to do this often. And uh, if you want to get in touch, um, milehighstash at gmail.com or just check us out at milehighstash.com.